Thank you for listening to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church. We exist to seek the glory of God for the good of Brookhaven. We do this through worship that is reformed, discipleship that's relational, and mission that's neighborly. If you want to know more about Christianity or our church home, please visit our website, faithbrookhaven.org. Now for today's podcast. Hey, what a beautiful day to gather for worship. I sure hope you get to enjoy it uh, later today. Our passage this morning, we're just going to read it and dive right in, is Acts 11, verses 1 through 18. I love this passage. It's so real in so many ways, and I hope you'll join me in discovering that. Let's just read it. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send a Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Let's pray. Lord, in these few moments, would you help us to hear your voice, to see, Lord, your goodness, to marvel at your grace, Lord, to behold the wonder of your blessed church. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's the context of the book of Acts. 
the very last words the Lord Jesus spoke while He was standing on earth and soil went like this. But you, referring to His followers, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. All right, follow Jesus' logic for a moment. Here's, here's what the Gospel is in a nutshell. Jesus moves toward the lost who neither deserve nor desire His love and forgiveness. What we call salvation. They neither deserve it nor they desire it. Yet He moves toward them. And the way they know this is that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, in a mysterious way, locks those truths into them, into those people. Uh, he applies the salvation that Jesus accomplished. They know it. It, it, it is, as the, as the teachers say, it is an effectual calling. It affects something. And for those whom the Holy Spirit has been given... Well, the way they think changes. Their affections, what they love, changes. And their actions, particularly in relation to God and to self and to others, changes. And so in, in hearing that, Jesus has this logic as the book of Acts begins that when that happens, those whom I have called to Myself take up that baton and move toward the lost, as I did, toward those who neither deserve nor desire love and forgiveness. It's a repeat. That's My Gospel and its effect. Now, Jesus gives us some instructions about how that's carried out in what I just read. Where does it happen? Well, He says first, locally, Jerusalem. Where you find yourself, that's where you carry out this pursuit. And then, He expands it and says, I'm not stopped there. This is not a localized cult. This is a global kingdom. So, that witness as opportunity provides spreads out to Judea and Samaria. Kind of beyond the borders of where you live. And then Jesus dumbfounds them by saying, not only is it going to go to people like you, but it's going to go to people nothing like you. To the ends of the earth. That's what that means. So that is where we pick up in Acts 11 because Peter, that quaint, hard-working, blue-collar, calloused-hand fisherman, stubborn, foot-and-mouth disease, impetuous, arrogant, here he is answering Jesus' call and following Him into, well, first, Judea and Samaria. He goes to a city called Joppa which is regionally not too far from Jerusalem. But culturally, it was to the ends of the earth. Joppa was a port city. 
And in port cities, it's cosmopolitan, it's massive. There are people from every nation that gather there. That's significant. It was a crossroads of trade between Europe, Africa, and Asia. It's the perfect place God would send Peter to preach the Gospel to Gentiles. Not Peter. Not his people. And so, we find Peter in a place that good Jewish children would have been told early on, don't visit there. And he's there. And this passage becomes a beautiful case study in how the people of God relate to what Jesus says they're to be about. And it goes in two ways. The first, Peter kind of hints at in verse 18, uh, verse 17 rather, it's, it's kind of a negative. He, he doesn't stand in God's way, but he says it's possible. He says, who am I to stand in God's way? That's one way to relate to what Jesus says my people will be about. I'll stand in God's way. Now, fortunately, Peter doesn't, but others do. The other approach to what Jesus has and intends for His people is in verse 18, where they fall silent. I love that. When you're quiet, when you stop talking, you can hear. And that's the other approach. Hear what God's doing with them. So I want to take that, and I want to show you that I think within these verses... And it's very appropriate because, frankly, coming out of the pandemic of COVID, everything that we've known about church and its functions and its normalcy, the ground has shifted. And you and I will stand in a place where decisions have to be made. And in this passage, I think we see the DNA of, well, two types of churches, and there only are two. The first is the DNA of a dead church. And the second is the DNA of a living church. Okay? Well, the DNA of a dead church shows up in a very short, brief comment, but it's everything you need to know. Because a dead, spiritually dead person reveals their heart in even the most common statements. So here's Peter. He's come. He's excited because he's seen God do something. And the people that he talks to frown. They're not as excited as Peter is. And they say these words to him. It's a specific group within the church that has a specific power. A specific influence. They, they call the circumcision party. It's who the Apostle Paul will battle his entire career. They are relentless in their pursuit of self-righteousness. And here they are, right off the bat. Peter comes and he begins to talk about his trip to Joppa where God did something amazing. And here are the words out of their mouth. Verse 3, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Not good job. Not we're so excited. They critique immediately what Peter did and where God led him. I would say that's the DNA of a dead church. 
And underneath those comments, you, you see under the surface, there are so many characteristics that would define a soul, a person who's dying spiritually. And consequently, when those souls gather together, a church that would be dying spiritually. Well, the first thing is amnesia. Here, here are the characteristics of what lie underneath that statement. The immediate critique that Peter went to a, a group of people who are not like us. They're unclean. They don't have the same religious pedigree, the same cultural tradition. And they immediately criticize him for doing that and eating with them, by the way. Because that's where he would be tempted to eat unclean things that they don't approve of. And you have to say the first thing out of the bat, maybe the most frightening, is that they have amnesia. They've forgotten grace. God told His people when they crossed over uh, into the land of promise from the Exodus that they were going to do this. You're going to get in the land and time's going to pass and you're going to forget that the only reason I plucked you out of death was because I wanted to. You're going to think it's because you were smart, because you were powerful, because you were important, because you were holy or pure. None of those. And that becomes a characteristic all along. That's, that's the issue of the circumcision these groups of people said, look, we'll let others come to Jesus. But they have to also prove how genuine their faith is by, like us, cutting their flesh. Like us, eating only the foods that are declared kosher. And even though they're Gentiles, we would ask that they start clothing themselves in a way that reflects what we consider appropriate. And so it was the dynamic of, hey, Jesus saves, but add these things to it, then we'll welcome you. And that's what they're concerned about. They've forgotten grace. They have amnesia. That's one characteristic of a dying soul. I just forget grace. I think... God loves me because of me. The second thing though, and again frightening, is indifference. A statement like that speaks of indifference to what Jesus was about. Seeking and saving the lost. They're indifferent. And what they're indifferent to is the fact that those people who receive this message are absolutely, positively, 100% on their way to eternal punishment. There's no stopping point. They are doomed. They are in peril. And to speak and limit someone from going and sharing that is the height of indifference. No compassion. So if you have amnesia of grace, you're certainly going to turn and be indifferent to the loss. You could care less. Their problem. But their loss. It reminds us, of course, of Jonah where God said, go to Nineveh. And Jonah said, no. I'm afraid they'll repent. I want to hang on to this. I'm special. Indifference. Amnesia, indifference. 
a word we understand and hear a lot, but it's equally applicable here is racism. Or if that's not satisfactory, ethnocentrism. There's an intrinsic belief that the culture of the circumcised group, the Hebrews, is a little more special to God than the uncircumcised, the other groups. And that's so easy to do. We always find ourselves struggling with a superiority complex. Certainly, if you have amnesia of grace and you're indifferent to the lost, it's a given. You're going to sooner or later begin to believe, I'm, I'm a little better than the most vile of all people. And so, of course, that becomes a stumbling block. You can hear that racism in their condescending terms. How dare you eat with those people? <laughs> There's another truth, though. One that is not as obvious, but it rests behind every one of those other things. It's fear. Fear. You want to know what's behind a person who's angry and withdrawn? Fear. They're really afraid. This is a group who, of course, because they're pointing out others' flaws, that's an evidence that they're so afraid of having that turned on themselves. And so if you bring others in, not like us, it's going to make us feel insecure that what we present to God is not enough. And indeed, it's not. We forget grace. We become indifferent. It turns into us versus them. And it's driven by a fear. What if they change things? It will imbalance. We'll hear more about that next week because as heroic as Peter may seem in this passage, he caves because of fear. Another is unbelief. The reason they would say something like that to Peter as he comes and shares, look what God has done in the most unlikely of places is they don't believe God does that. They actually limit God's possibilities. Even though they know what God's up to in the world as we read in our call to worship. Bless us. That we be a blessing. That Your name be proclaimed to the nations of the earth. And then you have to add just good old gritty disobedience. They knew what Jesus had said. You will receive power. You will be My witnesses. Where? Here. There. And out there, no is the response. I don't want to do it. Amnesia, indifference, ethnocentrism, fear, unbelief, disobedience, dead church. Living physically, dead spiritually. I once visited a dead church. I'm going to have two illustrations this morning. One negative, one positive. And they both exist in uh, pretty close to home. Uh, each could be reached in, in, within an hour. Okay? And the reason I had these experiences is because I used to have to raise support to go do missions overseas. And people love to hear from missionaries. They're exotic tales of animals and things like that. 
well, this particular church I visited, and I was going to be the speaker and Sunday school kind of pre- presenter, and I discovered what a dead church looks like. Here's what it looks like. This church was beautiful physically. They had just refurbished their sanctuary. It was stunning. The craftsmanship in the, the, the woodwork they had was phenomenal. It was shining and bright. And they were proud of it. And they should have been. It was beautiful. It really was. But you could tell pretty quick that was what they were about. This is where we've invested all of our time and money. And because it was new, they had bought brand new hymnals that they were also quite proud of. I know that because they would say things like, these are just a little more accurate than the ones we used to have. They were making some distinction. As the morning drew on, I could tell too, that it's an, it's an older church in an older town where people have just moved away and it's changed. And you know what I mean. And you could get a sense from the church that they... They spoke a lot negatively about their community. How horrible it was. And through the morning, I I thought, you know what, my Sunday school, I'm going to do something different rather than talk about my experiences. I'm going to list 15 ways that senior citizens in this dying community can serve and promote the kingdom of God. Glaze. So I began to tell stories that would wake them up about Malawi. And I wanted, I wanted to impress upon them the devastation of AIDS. Like, you know, we, we think uh, of the pandemic here as being <laughs> crucial and, and, and horrible. You know, AIDS in Africa claim 75 million people. So every place you would go, everyone was under 25 years old. And you ask, where are, the, where are the older people gone? And I wanted to impress that upon them by describing Coffin Row. It was a street in the long way, the capital city we lived in. And every little booth along this half a mile stretch, they were doing nothing all day but fashioning coffins. Just simple wood coffins. Why? Because death was staggering. Life expectancy was like 35 at the time. So it was, a, it was a very lucrative business, you might say. The reason I told that to this church was to, well, impress upon them the great needs of Jesus' kingdom, the peril of the lost, the hurting of the broken and poor. And when I said foolishly, the, the one thing teachers should never say, are there any questions? <laughs> Well, they were all nervous, but because they wanted to be polite, somebody had to ask one question. And so here was this precious lady in just a beautiful Carolinian southern accent, Carolina. She said, uh, what sort of wood do they use? And I said, ma'am, for the coffins, what sort of wood do they use? Dead. Disconnect. They would go on, of course, um, because they were physically still alive. 
And there was, of course, opportunity to turn the corner. But this is where they had settled. They had declared themselves to exist specifically to survive. And the concerns about even though they were, they were manifold around them, that they could affect in significant just friendship. They refused. Their mission seemed to be, we will eat, but we will never cook. You know what I mean by that? We're going to eat, but we're not going to cook. Gimme, let me go. Of course, the dividend of that was boredom. And, of course, planning to sell their real estate. And by the way, they're about there. I won't tell you who it is. They had become an ingrown church. And an ingrown church is something like an ingrown toenail. Sooner or later, you have to remove it. And God will do that with a dying and dead church. And it's an interesting dynamic when, when people like that refuse to first think, why does God have us here for the sake of that community? but focus only on their inward functions, they shrivel. If you go for just what you get, the, the, uh, they both die. The internal and the external. What about a living church? Because that's what this particular passage is about. Not just a critique. There's a lot in those words. And by the way, that becomes the song of the New Testament. What those people say. Every letter Paul writes is in battle against them. It's critical. Why? Because it's another religion. It's a false heresy. Sitting in Corinth and Galatia and Colossae. So what's a living church look like? Well, they get silent. They're quiet. When they hear Peter's explanation of what God had done, there is this quiet they marvel at what God is up to. Just walk real quick through this because I'm running over time. The first thing this living church does is it catches God's vision. Verses 4 through 10 are kind of strange, but that's what, uh, that's what we, we are given. This strange vision. Peter uses words like trance, and that's weird to us, but. We see this sheet descend and these different kinds of animals appear on it. And the voice says, kill and eat. And of course, this is, can be interpreted. Great, finally, there will be bacon in heaven. I'm so glad. There will be ribs. I know that Old Testament stuff, but, but it's more than that. The sheet is Revelation 7, what we read earlier. It's the church. And on that sheet is a vision of in Christ, the clean and the unclean. In Christ, the clean and the unclean. Or in this context, the Jew, the religious, and the Gentile. The irreligious, the lost. Both there. And what God, He scolds him. What God has declared clean, don't you dare call common. They are children of Abraham. And what Peter is presenting here is 
to catch that vision. The Revelation 7. That when people ask you, well, how big is your church? You can say, massive! There are Chinese and Korean and African and Middle Easterners. It's amazing. Can you believe it? That's the vision. And that's what the pursuit, of course, becomes. Vision is the ability to see beyond what we see. And the Bible is replete with that. If you want to get in touch with God, you will have to understand, I've got to see beyond what I just see. What does God see? Second, the living church defers to God's Word. Notice that Peter outholies God. The voice says, eat. And Peter outholies the Holy One by saying, I would never do that, Lord. Even though You commanded me, I'm not going to violate what I've always known. But God's Word overrules Peter's experience. And he relents. What Peter had considered custom, what, you know, as we always say, I've just always done this, God's Word overruled it. And he followed it. And what he discovers is that his self-imposed limitations on God can be eradicated. His assumptions about what God's up to can be done away with. His experiences and what He knows to be the right way can be overruled if God's Word says it. Third, the living church expects God to act. And that's where this whole thing about verse 13 where they're being told here about a man in the previous chapter, the man's name is Cornelius. He was a Gentile. He was a Roman soldier. And he was a good man. Charitable. He hung out sometimes with Hebrews. He seemed to be a good fella. But he still required salvation. And God had worked in his heart way before Peter had gotten there. And that's the point of this particular one. God acts way before you bring the Word to them. The Holy Spirit falls upon them and God converts them. Do you realize that if you reach out with the Gospel, you will be 100% successful according to God's will? God will do what He has intended to do. And that's what He's being taught. We expect God to do something. We don't tell God, you can't do this. You expect it. Finally, quickly, celebrate God's choices. That's the very end. When they heard these things, verse 18, they fell silent. And then they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles, God has also granted repentance that leads to life. Will you contrast that with verse 2 and 3? The first response is that of criticism. Naysaying. Don't go there. The final verse is glory hallelujah. Glory hallelujah. God has brought even these unclean people in to His Gospel. Well, I told you I visited a dying church. I've also visited a living church. And by the way, it's also within an hour's distance. And by the way, I won't tell you who they are. 
it was one of those, again, missions, conferences, and you can just observe people and you begin to note something significant about them. They were also a very small church of elderly people sitting in a dying community. You know what I mean by that? Like, the kids graduate high school, they don't come back. And then the businesses begin to close and factories, and that's, that's going to happen all over Mississippi. It had begun to transition. Those that were left were those that couldn't move out. The poor, right? And usually of another race. Hispanic, black, and so forth. It's interesting though, for some reason, the Lord chose to use three older men to just get this fire under them. And they went and learned how to do evangelism. And it's not the, it's not the method I, I like the greatest. It doesn't matter though. They had a fire about them of sharing the gospel with their neighbors, okay? And that scares me. (laughs) That scares me. They trusted the Lord partly because they're so old, they no longer care about rejection. There's a beauty in getting older. I don't care what you think. So they began to share that. And that kind of stirred up the women in the church. And they had developed these sewing groups. But rather than just like gathering themselves, they would ask the question, who can we invite? And it's interesting that their pastor had nothing to do with it. And here's the deal. They were living because they, it wasn't the actions they did. It was what was underneath it. They, um, they didn't get a single person to join their church. The, the racial divide and mix was exactly the same as it was. The age differentiation, exactly the same. But here was the difference between them and the other congregation. They sang with joy. And they li- you, could t- you can tell they listened when you shared with them about God's work. They, they drank it up. There was an attitude of regardless of what we get, glory be to God. They were thinking, of course, outwardly. That's how this, this chapter builds up. And you, you will see this unfold through the remainder of the book of Acts. This constant battle. And the letters of the New Testament. And the remainder of history. And of course, we're no exception. And the beauty for the, even the dead church in God's hand are those last few words. It says, repentance that leads to life. There's always an acorn falling in the ground that will produce an oak in God's kingdom. So even that church I described in another city, I pointed that way, don't pay attention to that. Even that church can begin to move toward Jesus Christ. It's not the actions that matter, what they do, nor is it the results they garnered, what do we get in return? It was simply... What is God doing through us? That was the question. Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank You that You can at one time both slice and heal us. That is a unique surgery that only You have the capability of doing. And I pray, Almighty God, that You would infect us with a vision for Your glorious Gospel That, Father, You would stir in our hearts a renewed joy in Jesus. 
And you would impress again upon us, Lord, that we, we are a living church because of Christ. We have something to offer. And we pray that you would present those opportunities as you presented Peter. And you would prepare hearts as you prepared Cornelius. And Lord, you would give us wisdom to know when to be silent, when to praise you. And we ask this now kindly in Christ's name. Amen.